1: if you like this program visit heritageradio network.org for thousands more.
2: Hey, and welcome to the food scene on Heritage Radio network.org I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkell, here today with a very special guest. And is, is Ridicchio your power? That's it. <laughs> power vegetable now? Power, it's <laughs> it. Power lettuce. Well, if you haven't guessed, Tom Colicchio. Like Ridicchio. Colicchio. Colicchio. You, just, you I, blew it already. I'm everyone's out of here. been trying to throw me <laughs> off all day, and I was so worried about it. I should just let you say your own name. Well, thank you so much for being on the food scene, being at Heritage Radio Network. Um, In this interview, I not only want to explore your life related to food and where you are now, where you've come from, but kind of ask all the questions that haven't been asked before. You know, there's kind of a protocol to talking to chefs these days, uh, especially of your stature. You know, what's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? And first, I just want to start off with what's the question that you never get asked that you always want to answer. Oh,
3: God, I don't know. The one answer I'd like to get out there, but yeah. no, no one seems to want to you know, put it out there once it's answered, is how long does it take you to do to, to Top Chef? And there's a reason for that. It takes about five weeks to shoot it, but yet everybody believes it takes about four or five months and I'm nowhere near the kitchen and restaurants anymore. Yeah. And so five weeks, that's it. And I only work every other day, yeah. so it's not a whole lot of commitment, but yeah. it, it appears to be.
2: So that's it is that the first thing people come up to you and say oh you're the guy from top chef and want to talk about that
3: no it's a combination there are are plenty of people um i was just down in new orleans and there's plenty of people saying oh my god you know hey tom how you doing i love your restaurants and you know so which i actually prefer
2: yeah 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 it's much more joyous (laughs) way things okay but i still you know i like my day job well let's let's talk before tv let's talk about you know maybe you watching television as a child um where did you grow up? What what were your influences and what did you cook and eat?
3: Yeah, I I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um and uh you know, food was always really, really important. You know, we had to be home for dinner um until I was, you know, probably seventeen or eighteen and we had meals, you know, at home. And uh my mother was a pretty good cook. My father was also pretty good. Um but some of my you know, the earliest memories were um around fishing and and, and um uh, I used to go crabbing with my grandfather in Barnegat Bay and, and my uncle. And uh, we would crab and clam and fish. And so we would usually come home with a, at least a bushel of clams and a bunch of crabs. And usually eels or maybe some snapper blues or maybe maybe a, a, an occasional fluke. Um, and we... Um, uh, my, my my grandmother and then my mother would make crabs uh, very little little different than most people are used to eating them. They would cook the crabs like you normally cook crabs, boil them with you know, Old Bay and stuff. Um, but then they would take them, take the shell off, clean out the gills, and um, put them in marinara sauce. And then we would serve the the sauce. You know, you simmer for about twenty five minutes in the marinara. It was, we called a crab gravy. And so you'd have that over the top of linguine, and then we'd pick through the crabs afterwards. And then the fish were usually always just fried, very simple fried, fried. pan-fried. And, you know, that was summer to me. Um, You know, my job, besides fishing, once I was old enough, I had two jobs. Uh, I had to keep my grandfather awake on the ride home because he he had a tendency of falling asleep. And... um, which, looking back on it, I can't believe my parents actually let me drive with him. <laughs> that was my job. Um, and as soon as I was old enough to hold a knife, my job was to clean the fish and fillet the fish and and uh, and prep everything.
2: Do you remember at what age you actually held that knife? I probably, I would
3: say around seven or eight. Yeah. Yeah, I remember he he taught me, and once I got it down, he was like, it's your job now, and you would just, you know, you'd go to sleep.
2: I mean, did that parlay itself into wanting to become a chef, or was that just a function of life that you loved? No, you know, looking
3: back on it, yeah, I'm sure it had some influence. At the time, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, But but looking back on it, there was, you know, especially around the holidays, there was always a lot of food, but, but, um, uh, you know, when I was about 13 or so, I started cooking at home, and... Just loved it and found it to be v- something very easy to do. Um, the only problem I had was I had a very hard time getting through recipes because most likely I would have been, you know, diagnosed with ADD and and probably pretty severe. I, I would imagine because I had a very very difficult time looking at a recipe and getting through it and trying to understand what they wanted me to do. Was it the written that was hard? Yeah, it just the the, the and looking back on it now, it's I think the way a lot of recipes are written. It's it's. Uh, um, but I, I, you know, I would start doing it, and I have to look back, and and you know, it, it was just it seemed very disjointed. And um, when I was about fifteen, um, my dad, um, my dad was a correction officer in a county jail, and he came home with Jacques Pepin's law technique. Not sure why that was in the jail library, but it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're and, all fashioning shivs and. Uh. Well, you know, it's it's a county jail. It's not it's not federal <laughs> penitentiary, but um, but he he brought it home. There was a few other books too: his New York Times cookbook and uh, probably I, I don't know what else it was, but I, I remember New York Times cookbook and I remember the, the Jacques And I started reading through it, and I remember the the the. Um, introduction talked about the book and talked about his career a little bit but the last paragraph said you know don't treat this book as a book as a cookbook treat it as an apprenticeship and the idea with the recipes weren't really the point it was about techniques and learning various techniques and once I kind of got through the book and started you know moving through it all of a sudden it, it just you know if I was looking at something a recipe and it would say you know Cut carrot, celery, onion, leek into one inch pieces, brown them off, take your, your lamb shank, brown it on all sides, put it together, marinate it overnight in red wine. The following day, put it in the oven with chicken stock and some herbs, cook it for three hours. And now it's just like braise the lamb shank. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it, it really just changed something and did something. And so, um, but I was a shorter cook um, when I was 14. Um, I worked at a snack bar at a swim club. And I was hired, I still say to this day, it was the best job I ever had. I I was hired as a, uh, you know, the scoop ice cream work at the cash register. And uh, I was there a couple weeks and I took over the the, the cooking. And the guy who was running this concession lived in the same town I did and he would pick me up. And about the second trip, I realized that uh, he was usually pretty stoned by the time he picked <laughs> me up. And at one point, I just said, <laughs> you want to share? And uh, so I would go to work, and I would actually work in a pair of cutoffs, no shoes, no socks, you know, no sh- no, you know and just sit back there and make grilled cheese sandwiches and burgers and Please steak sandwiches. Please tell me you
2: still have a photo of that. Maybe we'll post that on the I website don't think for so. this interview. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so.
3: But he was also paying me $275 a week under the table.
2: At 14. At 14. That's ridiculous. (laughs) It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you go back and do that job? Dump the whole empire. You know, every now and then I feel I should. Mm. (laughs) Just like, go somewhere
3: where no one knows me and just kind of like, you know, find a shack somewhere. You willing to wear cut off
2: pants still? Yeah, I think we'll talk (laughs) about that. (laughs) They might be a little longer (laughs) than they were back then. So, Jacques Pepin, La Technique. Mm -hmm. Is it still relevant? Yeah, sure.
3: I think so. I think that Again, I think for a young cook starting out, the, 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 the idea of learning technique and learning methods by which to cook as opposed to focusing on recipes um, uh, and, and ideas, I, th- I think if you really understand the basics and, and really understand them, you know, how to make – I mean, how many, how many kids know, really know how to make a, a, a consomme? And I say kids. I just turned 50, so I'm talking about people who are like 24, 25. Really know how to like, can, can make a, a great stock, make a great consomme. Um, you know, without a super bag, um, you know, like the real sort of sort of nuts and bolts of cooking. And I think a lot of that is, is, is you know, I, I think there's a going back to it, but for a short time, maybe like the last 10 years almost, there seemed to be going away from that. and Everybody was sort of grasping onto like, wow, how cool is it to make spherification, but like, how about if we cook first? And I, I feel like we're starting to drift back to that, which is kind of nice to see.
2: So of those techniques... Let's take spherification. Let's take emulsification. We knew it as mayonnaise. We knew it as... Well, aioli. yeah, that, that hasn't changed, yeah. So what things have changed? You said super bag. Are there other new elements that change core techniques? Um, yeah, I think,
3: uh, you know, a lot of times it's it's equipment. Like right now, I'm messing around a lot with, with pressure cookers and doing stocks that take no time at all and, and soups that are very quick. But, you know, I think... Um, a, a lot of an understanding of um of uh hydrocolloids and things like that really changed things like when you were able to make a gel that was you were able to heat that was like the big the holy grail as as you listen to Ferran talk about what the holy grail was and after that there was really nothing more to do yeah. <laughs> um but uh you know I, I i mean for me since i i wasn't i would, i didn't chase that you know that rabbit down the hall so i i i'm not sort of I think the best person to comment about it.
2: So filleting fish. Aside from that, what was the first technique that you mastered? Oh, I, 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 there are two things I focused
3: on: making stocks. So I would actually just go out and buy chicken bones and make stocks, and then I'd clarify it. And knife skills. I used to buy celery, you know, heads at a time, and just stay home. And my mom for Christmas when I was about fourteen, fifteen. I said, I, you know, Christmas time, what do you want? I wanted a Hankel knife. You know, I'd, I'd read all the magazines and Hankels. You know was the knife to get then, and, and so uh, she got me one, and I would I would practice knife skills.
2: Did you go to school, or did no. you jump right into a job, and mm-hmm. what was that? No. Um, I started working at
3: a local restaurant. Uh, I grew up in Elizabeth, and uh, a restaurant called Evelyn's Seafood Restaurant, and I was working there in the winters. I worked there bussing tables, and then um, as soon as I graduated high school um, that summer, I think it was in August, they let me <coughs> work in the kitchen. I started in the prep kitchen and uh uh that was a it was a it was, a, it, was a, it was a sort of eye-opening experience um i remember the first night the guys in the prep kitchen decided to just screw with me and so i walked in and i had about 150 pounds of shrimp to peel and these weren't u10s or anything these were like small like you know 22 25s and um and then when i was you know hours later when i finished that they brought out another 100 pounds and 9 o'clock at night, I think, you know, I, I got to work at 7 in the morning. 9 o'clock at night, I was, I was falling asleep over the last 50 pounds. I think one of the, you know, servers came downstairs and woke me up. But, uh, you know, I had I had one of those moments there, you know. I, 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 it was a lot of college students, and I was a lot younger. I was a couple years younger, but we would go out to drink afterwards. And this uh, one night, I ended up behind the restaurant with this young woman. Again, she was a couple years older than I was, and, you know, kind of, doing my thing in the car and all of a sudden the cop came and knocked on the the window and i knew all the cops in town And the guy knocked on the window he looked at me he said what are you doing here i said i work here he said how old are you i said i'm 17 he said how old is she i said i don't know 25 and he looked at me and laughed and just said have a good night and walked away and so that was that was my introduction to the restaurant business and uh i i've been there ever since but i planned on going to um to culinary school. And you had to work in two restaurants before they would accept you at CIA. And uh, my th- fourth job um, was at Quilted Giraffe um, back when it was on 2nd Avenue back in the heyday. And I was there three months and, and Barry gave me the sous chef's position. So at that point, I wasn't going to school.
2: So this is Barry Wine. Yeah. The man that invented beggar's purses.
3: No, he didn't invent them. Actually, uh, he, he, he kind of borrowed them from a restaurant in France Yeah, um, that was doing them first. Um, but uh, Barry... Uh, Barry knew how to run a restaurant. He was he was he and Susan really knew how to run a high end restaurant, a quality restaurant. It was uh, it was it was quite the quite the restaurant back then. So
2: how was his management different than Evelyn's?
3: Oh, it was a totally different restaurant. I mean, Evelyn's was a churn burn. We would do a thousand covers on a, on, a, on a Saturday night at Evelyn's, and uh, it was a seafood restaurant, a fried and royal seafood restaurant. And Barry uh, Barry was running. You know, back then, I think he had hundred and fifty dollar, two hundred dollar check average. And it was great also, you know, we were, we were only open Monday through Friday.
2: So we were in dinner only. It was a great job. So you skipped over your second and third kitchen jobs.
3: Yeah, I worked in a red sauce Italian place called Chestnut Tavern in Union. And then I ended up working um, uh, at the Secaucus Hilton. And I was a night chef. No, before that, I was at a restaurant called um, the Old Mansion in Elizabeth, these two Guys who so had just graduated from CIA were running it. And, it was, you know, we were doing some interesting things, but it was kind of old school. And um, then I ended up going to, uh, I think, the Secaucus Hilton from there. when you know, I was there a couple months, and they gave me this night chef's position. It was kind of like running the kitchen at night. And, you know, I'd go through my books, you know, all the three-star chef books, and try to do, rip off the dishes and do them. And I realized that there was no way these dishes were right. Something was missing. And so I took a step back and took a cook's job at a restaurant called 40 Main Street which um, was really eye-opening. It was a, a really good group of, uh, of, of, of cooks in the kitchen, um, a few had who had worked in New York and were working there. And, uh, you know, we were doing the menu every day, fresh every day, depending on what comes in. And, um, you know, we were going to the fish markets in the morning and going to, uh, uh, you know, we would go to the meat markets and then pop out to D'Artagnan on the way back. This is back when George and Ariane we're essentially working over a, a cool, out of a cooler and a, a desk, and uh, we would go there. And so we were kind of doing it, and, and uh, you know, got three stars in the Times, uh, New Jersey Times, New York Times, but New Jersey edition. And, uh, you know, that was great. I mean, it was really just kind of happening. And, um, but I, I left there to, to go to, to – um, I actually worked there as a cook first, and then I went to quilt it, left quilt it, and went back to that restaurant as a chef. And, um, and then from there, uh, Gotham, after Gotham, uh, I think I ended up in Gascony working for, uh, I don't know, uh, I, um, yeah, Ariane's, uh, brother and father. Um, and then I came back home and I worked in New Jersey a little bit for a restaurant called the Tower Tree for a short time. And then came into New York and started working for uh, at Raquel with Thomas Keller. And uh was a sous chef there. And then from there, um, I ended up uh, at Mondrian. That was my first chef's job in New York.
2: So the latter half of that is French heavy. When did that conversion – I mean, you grew up in an Italian household. Mm-hmm. When did you go from Italian to French?
3: Well, back then when I started, we all did French food. You didn't have um, the sort of, you didn't gravitate towards Italian restaurants then. If you were, you know, kind of the young American cook who wanted to learn, do things, um, you know, the, 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 the people that, that, the old people that were working, was either Alfred Portales or, you know, like Barry. Well, Barry, Barry won. That wasn't French. That was really more American. But, um, you know, you could either go that route um, with some of the French chefs. Um, you know, you go to Le Cerque and, and, and uh, um, I think that's me. Sorry. Um, it's Barry. No, that's he, not he's, he's
2: telling you that, uh, he actually not invented the beggar's purse. Anyway,
3: um, uh, it was just, um, or, or you can go the American route and work at like, uh, with Larry Forgione and that bit, but no one was going, no one was doing Italian. There was no sort of, um, Italian equivalent at the time. And, um, uh, you know, even if you think about other Italian American chefs like Albert Portale or Tom Valente, um,
2: we weren't, you know, doing Italian food. So you have Jacques Pepin's lost Technique and you, you know, read through that book, practiced that book. What did you learn in the restaurant that wasn't in that book? Oh, you know, restaurants,
3: and I think this is what sort of, uh, you know I was up at CIA recently, and I gave a commencement speech and sort of some of the things I talked about afterwards with some of the chefs that the 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 artistry I think in in restaurant cooking it 's not so much the dish that you come up with it 's whether or not you can actually execute those dishes night after night, sort of create a system by which you can create a dish and take that dish and put it into a system that can produce food and produce it quickly, produce it you know uh, you know if, if, um, get the food out, you know, and expedite it out and, and, and make sure everything is, is coming together. All the entrees are coordinated and cold foods coordinated with hot food. That's really the art into to what we do when it comes to the kitchen. If it's only about recipes, well, we can all go out and get the French Laundry cookbook and, and copy those recipes. But, you know, good luck producing that in the kitchen. And so when you go from restaurant to restaurant, part of it you're learning a different style. Every chef has their own style of doing things and their own way of plating and their own way of you know, organizing a kitchen, but they also have very different approaches to whether it's expediting or setting up stations or, uh, you know, how, how they coordinate, you know, dishes and, and how they, they coordinate the prep. And so that's what you learn going from restaurant to restaurant. And then you kind of cherry pick the best of that, not the dishes, the, the, the management of the kitchen is what you're learning. Um, and I think too many people are focused on, I got to learn this dish and this technique and I got to learn this. And it's not about dishes. It's really about, understanding and creating a system um you always say that that the, the tricky part because um you can't do everything to order And when i say everything to order you, if you have a dish with zucchini on it when the order comes in you don't start cutting the zucchini it's you know you're prepping stuff ahead of time and so the real sort of art to it is, is trying to understand what you could do in advance that is going to be the, the least detrimental to the final outcome of the dish and, and so that's that's where the the sort of, you know, how far you want to push it, whether or not, you know, that all determines how big of a kitchen staff you're going to have. Because if you have a very small kitchen staff, you have to do a lot more in advance. Um, if you are, you know, uh, doing a restaurant where you feel that you want to have more cooks, you're going to have to charge more for your food. You're going to have to... Um, uh, you know, maybe you can do things differently. That's why if you look at some of the you know the great restaurants. They always have much more people in the kitchen. Um, they can afford it because they're charging them. That, that, that you know they have a price structure that can support that.
2: How many people did you have in the kitchen at Quilted Giraffe, at Gotham at Raquel? Oh, Quilted.
3: Oh God, there was always about twenty. You know, Quilted. There was. It's hard to say at, Mondre, at, at my current restaurants. Uh, you know, I have it set up usually where there's a meat side and fish side. So, going back to Gramercy. Um, I had a meat side, fish side. There were three R4 cooks on each side of the line. And then there was myself and the sous chef expediting. There was two, two in garmage, two in pastry. Um, So it was a good, you know, 12 people or so.
2: Let's talk about those restaurants again, mainly here in New York. You talked about style versus systems. Which systems did you pick up at each place and take with you?
3: Well, Barry had a great system. You know, Barry wasn't a trained chef, but he he had a restaurant upstate in uh, New Paltz before coming to New York. And... um, as he tells the story um, his chef when he was up at New Pauls didn't come in one night and he and his brother-in-law had to cook everything and so he had to figure out a timing system he figured okay if everything takes less than you know 12 minutes to cook we can figure out a timing for that and, and, and he used it you know when we were in New York and everything more or less took 10 minutes to cook and so he had a timing system set up around that and it worked really well
2: yeah. So, would you just cook everything every ten minutes?
3: No, 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 no. It was a matter of coordinating everything. So, um, when the tickets were coming in, he had a time on them. So the time when the ticket came in, and so he would put the apps out. And this is the same, almost the same system I use today. You put the appetizers out. When the apps go out, you you put a, a time on it and say it's say it's eight twenty two. So you just put twenty two, and what we do is we'll wait. 10 minutes that the apps are on the table and then fire the food, knowing that it's going to take another 10 minutes to cook and that it all comes up. And so that puts the entrees hitting the table in about a half an hour from when the ticket comes in, which is usually the right time. When we're running behind and it starts going to 40 minutes, we know people are getting antsy. When it goes to 50, they're starting to look around. If it's an hour from when the ticket first comes in and this is an apps and entrees, we know we've lost that table. And so it's a timing system that we use so the wait staff doesn't have to fire... The tickets, it's just kind of, it's a system that kind of, you can work without uh, um, sort of the, 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 the staff on the floor trying to figure out the timing of what's going on in the kitchen. That, that you don't want to do. Um, and so and it works really well. Um, in fact, uh, um, I, I think Eric or I remember spending some, you know, a night in the kitchen, just hanging out with him one night and just I looked at what he was doing. And he was pretty much doing the same thing. It yeah. just, it's just uh, – it's, it's a good system. It works.
2: Isn't it nice to see those consistencies, those analogous things? You know, yeah. You know, you read La Technique and hope that everyone turns, you know, a vegetable like that. Then you never know whether or not systems are the same until you're in that restaurant. Yeah.
3: And every, again, everybody has a, a very different system, you know. And it's, it's amazing to listen to the way cooks – our chefs call tickets too because there's all a shortcut and a slang and there's, there's – there's, uh, and and the, and all the staff all know it. They know it. The cooks in the kitchen know it. And and you go into another kitchen. You have to learn that language. It's a different language. And, and even though it's very similar, just the way they're calling the shorthand of calling tickets is. Uh, it has its—it's it's kind of its own little thing.
2: So call a ticket for us. What's your shorthand? What's your slang? See, I don't do the shorthand slang thing. I like you know so
3: Johnny Schaefer, who was my my chef de cuisine at Grammar's, he was the best. He was—he just you know a cod wasn't a cod. It was a C O D. I'm not sure why that was shorthand, but it's, it was a C O D. Um, I, I, you know, I don't I don't remember some of them, but it's all pretty colorful too. Yeah, times. yeah. You so shiitake wasn't a shiitake. It was giving me a shit. Uh. A, 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 uh um, What was the shorthand? For, there was a Jerusalem Art Shorthand that was pretty good, too. I'm trying to think what it I was. I mean,
2: do you ever walk into a restaurant, see shiitake on the menu, and ask for a shit? No. Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah. nah. So you talk about Johnny. I'd rather first start with your mentors and then who you mentored. Well, you know, I I don't have
3: anyone that I would consider a real mentor only because I never stayed in a place long enough. Um, You know, it was a year. Oh, for me, it was a year, at, year and out. Um that was it. Um I figured if I can't learn for what I wanted to do because I I was I was happy to be a cook for 10 years before being a sous chef. And so for me it was just I wanted to learn as much as I can and move on. And early on I stayed a little longer. Um because I didn't I didn't know enough. But you know I um you know, I stayed about a year quilted a year at at uh at, at a little less at at, at uh Gotham um a year at Raquel. Um, but I, you know, I knew I wanted my own, my own place. I knew I wanted to do my own thing. So it was, it was just very direct. I'm staying a year. I ended up, I forgot it's somewhere in there. I, I ended up working uh, in, in, uh, with Michelle Bra in France as well. I just uh, forgot was, about that. I forgot <laughs> about, forgot about that. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, it, so I, I don't have anyone who I could say was a real mentor.
2: So you say a year in, year out. Um, with that kind of track record, would you hire yourself now? Yeah, sure, sure. I think I think you know a cook. I think a year's good. You know, what I
3: would rather see. and I did this for a while, and then you know, and, and I would still do it, but I'm not involved so much in the in the, the you know in the hiring process anymore. Uh, my chefs are doing that, but I, I think if I, you know, were a, a, a well, what I, what I would tell when I was hiring, what I would tell the, the cook coming to me is, "Listen, give me a year. When you want to leave this restaurant, don't just give notice and leave and try to find a job. Tell me where you want to work. I'll make a phone call for you." This is like the, the way they used to do, it, you know, in, in France. And so, and I did this for a while. Someone would call and say, All right, "I really want to work, uh, you know, at Le Bernardin." And say, "Okay, let me give it, let me give Eric a call." I would call Eric and say, "Eric, I got a guy who's really good. He's been here a year. He's worked a couple stations. Um, wants to come work for you. Um, do you need someone?" And do you want to swap? Do you have anybody that's been working for you a while that, that, you know, wants to see something new? How about if, you know, you send somebody my way, I'll send somebody your way. And I would do that with him. I would do it with Alfred. I would do it with, you know, three other people. And it worked great. And I, I think that's missing now. I think everybody thinks it's so cutthroat that, you know, God forbid you you're, you're want to leave the restaurant. It's like they're not indentured servants. It's like they're not going to be here forever. They're, you know, the idea is you're going to work, you're going to, you know, Learn as much as you can. You're going to move to the next spot. Learn as much as you can because you want to take that sous chef's position somewhere. You know, or maybe it was someone like, you know what? I, I, I think you, you're, you have a lot of potential. I want you to see a few other things and then come back and you know, when I'm looking for a sous chef, I'll give you a call.
2: It's not like they're forgotten in your kitchen. No, 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 no. I'm going to come back to Gramercy Tavern in a second, but I've been in craft and I've been in the kitchen in craft. Um, and it's somewhere in between on the stairwell where there are a few initials. Yeah. Who, who are those people? And where are they
3: now? Oh, God. Those are, that's the, that was the, f- the first uh, opening crew. That was uh, Marco Canora, who's at Hearth. That was Jonathan Benno, who's at Lincoln. That was, uh, I think, Akhtar Nawab, uh, who may have been part of that. Karen Damasco was, I think, uh, she was definitely there when we opened. I think her initials are carved into are, are in the concrete. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some notable people. Well, James Tracy was there. Yeah, at the beginning. James, was now the chef. Yeah. Um, he came back and, and, uh, after he took a hiatus to, out to Massachusetts for a while now, he's back. Um, uh, yeah, there's some pretty good names on that, on that stairwell. Do you feel like their mentor? I, I don't, I'm not going to take credit for anybody's career. Um, uh, I, I hope that the time they spent with me, they learned something and, and uh, they could draw on that, but, uh, I'm, I, am I don't. I don't take credit for for someone's career.
2: Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, talk about your Danny days at Gramercy uh, Tavern. Sure, you'll be listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. dot org. We'll be right back.
1: This one's called Summer Jam by Cookies on HeritageRadioNetwork Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. We're committed to making wholesome, delicious, and sustainably produced heritage foods available to all Americans. In doing so, we will foster the link between sustainable land use, small-scale food production, and preservation of the foods of past generations for future generations. For more information and to order today, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com.
2: Welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org here today with TC. Those were your initials in the stairs, right? Yeah, those are them. That's it. Gramercy Tavern. hmm You know, you cooked at all these wonderful restaurants, and then you were given this opportunity with this young, budding restaurant tour, Danny Meyer. Well, actually, it didn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I, I was at, uh, at Mondrian, and... Um, you know it was it was great i mean i i was 26 i think when we got three stars from from Brian Miller and um uh you know, there was a bad business underlying business deal in that restaurant, and we sort of never made money. Even when we were busy, we weren't making money. And so, I finally went to the owners, and they're they're all bankers at Morgan Stanley. And I said, "Listen, let's just close this. It's not. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense." And they wanted me to, you know, just, you know, they wanted to keep the restaurant going. And I was like, know, it's time to just close it. I don't, I don't feel good about this anymore." And in 1991, um, I was out in Aspen. Um, I got Best New Chef along with Michael Romano. And I met Danny there that year. And um, prior to that, he had been coming into... I mean, I met him before that. But he, he had been coming into Monterey a lot. And his general manager, uh, Paul Wolf Bevan, was coming in at the time. And servers were coming in. So I knew he, he liked the restaurant. And, uh, but I really spent some time with him that, 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 uh, uh, during the, the, the festival in Aspen. And um, uh, the following year, I went back. And I knew the restaurant was closing. This, I think we closed in July. So this was June. And uh, I just kind of was feeling him out. And I called him a couple weeks later. I said, listen, Danny, I'm closing Mondrian. And he said, well, why are you calling me? I said, well, I think you like the restaurant. I like what you do. Let's get together and do something. And he said, I don't want to do another restaurant. Busy enough. And about a week later, he called up and said, you know, um, let's talk about this. And so we decided to take a trip together. We, uh, we ended up uh, going to Italy and spending I think about a week and by the time we came and you know we didn 't talk about the kind of restaurant we wanted. We talked just about just life in general, where we wanted to go, what we saw going on in, you know, in the food world, and uh, what we thought was needed, that kind of stuff.
2: What did you see then well we, we, we knew we,
3: we both wanted to do something that you know he liked food wise what I was doing, so there wasn 't a whole lot of discussion about that. Um, I liked service wise what he was doing downtown. You know, at, at, uh so downtown because Mondrian was uptown. Um, uh, it was all correct but casual, really friendly, um, you know, what he's known for. And so I always thought that was, that's what was really missing from from Mondrian. And so um, we got off the plane. You know, we also talked about family, what we were doing as far as, you know, where our lives were heading and eventually where we wanted to go, that kind of stuff, you know, just life stuff in general. And when we got off, we said, let's do this. And that was it. It took us about uh, eight or nine months to find uh, a a space. And I remember walking. I was with a broker. I remember walking down the street on 20th Street and looking. And the whole store, the whole front was boarded up with with, graffiti all over the front of it. And I looked at it and said, that's it. And, And there was this whole idea of these windows, these big windows. And I remember back when Oreo was, was um, the original Aureole and I remember looking you know you're walking by and looking in that big window and you see this thing going on this party that seemed to be going on you wanted to be part of it you wanted to be in there and that was kind of what I looked at and I saw these windows I was like I could see this great bar up front and you know this vibrant scene that people want to be part of and so that was it and then it took a while to negotiate it and what people don't realize with Danny Danny's one hell of a negotiator and he was hardball and tough it was, and you know you don't expect that from him because he's such a nice guy Well, he was, he was rough in a room and, um, and, uh, um, we got, we got the space and it took about a year to build and, uh, you know, that was it. And, you know, that restaurant, when it first opened up was, you know, we got two stars from Ruth Reichel. I thought we deserved one. Um, I, I, you know, I was so freaked out about the size of the restaurant because Mondrian was 70 seats or something. And I was so freaked out about the size of it and, you know, kind of dumb things down. And and about a year later, I remember, um, It was kind of right before the Beard Awards. And I knew that we were the new restaurant. A lot of chefs would come in and check us out. And I remember going to Danny and saying, you know what? We got to change things here. And uh, we were doing about 220, 230 covers a night, like during the week and 250 on weekends. I said, I want to scale the numbers back a little bit. And, you know, 180 is probably a better number. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, listen, Danny, we'll do tasting menus. And, you know, I think we'll have more time. The wait staff can spend more time at the table and we'll sell more wine and things like that. And he said, fine, go ahead and do it. And from there, we just changed, and I sort of just changed what I was, was doing in the kitchen and sort of really started doing what I was doing at Mondrian, And uh, I said, I'm not going to dumb this down anymore, and then things just changed. You know, and Claudia started coming into her own. Uh, Paul Greco was running the, 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 the wine program and service, and Nick Matone uh, was the general manager then. And boy, things just started to click, and uh, you know, Ruth came back. And uh, kind as they say, the rest was history.
2: So, did it turn out how you wanted it to turn out? Was this yeah. your first restaurant that you opened from, con- you know, conception, it, 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 construction on? It, it,
3: it was. It was the first restaurant that I um, uh, built, uh, that I put money in, <laughs> that um, I, I owned, Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, there was there was, uh, um, yeah, sure. Do you miss it? Do you or what? I do, I do you actually. I do. I you know, it's it's interesting because um, I, I was gonna um, we had a deal worked out where I was buying the restaurant from Danny and I sat over a weekend and thought about it and said, you know what? Uh, you know, let me just, and I already had craft uh, was already open at this point and I was like, you know what? Let me just do what I'm doing and maybe, maybe I'm better off selling. So I ended up doing that, but yeah, I miss it. I, I miss, um, you know, there's still a lot of great people there who, who uh, were, were working there when I was there. Um, Kevin Mayhan is general manager now and Juliet Pope, who was running the beverage, who was at the time uh, one of my cooks in the kitchen and then worked up to sous chef. And then one day just said, I want to work in the front of the house. And now she's the wine director there and doing a great job. Um, you know, the prep team, uh, Modesto Batista, who, you know, no one knows who he is except the people who worked in that restaurant. He was the glue that held that place together. Him and his wife and his, his you know, his, his sister-in-law, I think it was, the prep, they're all still there. They're, they ran that prep kitchen and, um, you know, they were the, the real sort of heart and soul of that place.
2: You would never take him away from Danny?
3: Well, at, at, you know, at one point he was splitting time between the, between the two and it just became difficult. So it just Modesto kind of go on. And you know, I just found out his son, um, who was, you know, a baby when we were there, is now at MIT. Um, so, you know, th- that's the kind of stuff I miss, you know, staying in touch with some of the people that were there. So, and I, I miss working with Danny too. I do. Um, but, you know, we started doing things, you know, sort of going in different directions, and he brought on other people, and, and uh, you know, we weren't as connected anymore. So it was time to yeah, up.
2: Yeah, but what you both are doing for food in the restaurant industry probably was the same thing you talked about on that Italian trip.
3: Without a doubt. Without a doubt, yeah. yeah.
2: So reviews. First Brian Miller, then Ruth Reichel. Do those make the man, or do those make the restaurant?
3: They're the scorecard. I don't think it makes either. It's just it's just the scorecard. Uh, Brian Miller, Ruth Reichel, Grimes did Kraft, and gave us three. And Sifton did Calico on Sunset. So it's four restaurants, three stars, four different reviewers. Um, no, it's the scorecard, you know. And I've listen, when CNS opened up, we got some 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 pretty bad scores too. Um, uh, it's the way it goes, you know. It, you know, my feeling is. And I actually agreed with some of those earlier reviews um, uh, that we got. Um, uh, Adam Platt you know, took us to task, and we deserved it. He came in very early on. Um, I remember when uh, Time Out, um, I'm forgetting the reviewer now for some reason, probably because it was such a bad review, I want to forget him. Um, but we, we lost his ticket in the kitchen. And I only remember this because when I read the review, he said it took an hour to get it to appetizers. And I was like, it had to be that one because we actually lost the ticket. And so, yeah, we we deserve some of that stuff. But, you know, by the time Sifton rolled around, we were a good, you know, I think almost two months in and, and things had clearly changed.
2: So Kraft, Mm-hmm. three-star review in 2001, mm-hmm. three-star review in 2011. Mm-hmm. First of all, congratulations Thanks. on that. Um, what did it feel like the first time and what did it – mean to you the second time um the
3: first time around because we were doing so you know something very different at craft when when we opened um it was um you know just just a sort of uh validation that that we were doing something and it was it was good we were, i was worried about that because the food was so simple i had thought that someone can look at this and go what is this i don't get it or they could say this is so clean and pure and it on its own merits, it deserves uh, this kind of review. But again, the, the review is more about the food. It's about the restaurant, too. And so, you know, um, it, it was just, to me, validation that we were sort of on the right track and doing the right thing.
2: What was so simple? I mean, what was the menu? Well, like, you know, when we first opened
3: Craft. you know, the idea um, was to, to be, you know, so pure. So it was it was literally, if, if we were doing a piece of fish, a sea bass, it was, you know, pan roasted, some herb, olive oil, salt, pepper, that's it that's it and you know you ordered sides and you ordered whatever you wanted to and everything was served separately everything was served you know ordered a la carte and so it was a very um a very you know sort of different and sometimes challenging concept for people to sort of wrap their head around um but uh so you know grime's coming in and giving us giving us that review it was it was great you know and and uh um but yeah, you know, we have people to this day who just never liked that restaurant. It's fine, you know. I don't think you have to be everything to everyone. Yeah, and uh, people who love it, and there are people who figured out how to use our menu very early on, and they would come in and use it almost like a neighborhood restaurant. They would come in and get a salad and split it, and you know, order a fish and split it, and a couple sides, and it was enough food. Um, and then there are people who come in and order the whole menu and just get buried under an avalanche of dishes.
2: Um, how do you order from your own menu?
3: I, I order just like that. I I can't eat a lot these days. I, I you know. I have an app and an entree, and I'm stuffed. Um, so when I go there, it's um, I'll, I'll order you know if it's a pasta, a split a pasta, uh, my wife and I, and then I'll order like you know a fish or a meat dish and a couple sides. But I don't order two entrees. And the portions are large enough to feed you know anyway. If you're not looking to stuff yourself, it's enough. And so
2: in 2011, <clears throat> when you got the three star review again at Kraft, did it confirm that? or confirm that you had these systems in place and they worked, that it was consistency that was the key, or was it just so timely that it can last that decade?
3: Um, no, the systems are only as good as the people that are that are running them. Um, and, and so um, uh, at this point, James was back. Uh, prior to the James, Damon Wise was running the restaurant, uh, running the kitchen. And, um, you know, I... I uh, again, affirmation that 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 we were still relevant. You know, when when you get when you're, when you're doing what I'm doing for 30 years, and you start seeing a lot of you know young guys are coming up, you start wondering whether or not you're still relevant, and you start to figure out how to main, how to maintain that relevancy, and you know you don't want to go out. Um, and uh, so that was that was important. In, in fact, that whole leading up to that doing tuesday dinner you know tom tuesday dinner and and then uh cns changing from craft steak that was all me trying to stay relevant and i'm you know really honest about it you know i you start hearing and tv has a lot to do with this um you know when when i left gramercy i was doing a certain type of food there and craft was very different than what i was doing at Gramercy. scene and by design, it was they're around the corner from each other, and wanted, wanted, wanted something so. I didn't have a, a Thai restaurant in me or something like that, and so. Um, but when I, I left Gramercy, and then I start doing TV, um, people start coming in to the restaurant who don't know what I did before because now they know me from TV, and you start hearing, "This is it. It's so simple. I don't get it. Like really," and. You know, you start hearing that, and then I, I wanted to start doing the food that I was doing at Gramercy. And at the time, I started looking for a restaurant. It was during the recession. It was kind of, you know, I couldn't find a place I wanted to do without dumping a lot of money into it. Partners didn't want to put money into anything at the time. And so I said, you know, I have a private dining room. It's, let me just take it one night every other week and turn it into a, you know, a tasting restaurant where I'll do 12 courses and um, do about 35 covers. And um, I remember the first time I did, the first one I did, this woman walked up right to, you know, because it was open kitchen, walked up and said... Oh my God! I had no idea you can cook this way. And I was like, looked at her. She said, well, "I come to craft all the time." I thought that's what you did. And at that point, I was like, "Oh God! I gotta. This is. I'm kind of on the right track." And then, because I wanted wanted you know do that food again, that's why I decided to change craft steak into CNS, and um, just to sort of keep pushing that 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 envelope a little bit. Because again. Sitting there, all of a sudden, trying to think, like, are, are my best days past me? Is this all over? Is it, you know, and, and also because I've, I have, you know, eight restaurants, and I have other responsibilities, and I have two young kids at home, and so you're trying to figure out, like, am I getting, am I just getting too old? What's going on here? And you, you want to you, you hold on to, you know, the glory days, and the only way to do that is not to relive the glory days, it's to do something new.
2: Sustainability. Well, yeah. in, in a completely different sense. Yes, yeah. yeah. But to be successful, I, I like that you brought up the point of television. Obviously, a lot of people know you through that route. They could also go back and see your Best New Chef Awards, Outstanding Chef of the Year, Restaurant of the Year, all this stuff, and know that there's obviously pedigree there. Um, but what does it mean to be successful? Does it mean these days to be on TV, to have no. expanded uh, restaurants around the country, around the world? No, you're
3: still only as good as your last dish. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um I don't
3: you know I don't I I think a success is you determine what success is. Um I don't think you have to be on TV. Um there are some people who aren't good on TV or who not, are not going to be good on TV and and um so no I don't think I don't think that's it at all. In, in fact uh you know I gave a I said I gave a commencement speech to CIA and one of the messages was that you know if you came to the school to you know to one day be on TV if your parents are you know sitting next to you apologize for wasting their money it ain't going to happen it happens to a handful of people and so no that's that's not you don't need to do that you don't need to have books you, you you need to do what you want to do and you define success on your terms if you want to do a you know a small neighborhood restaurant and you become the best neighborhood restaurant that's successful you' that's that's success so you you define those terms you don't you don't let other people do that. well we're
2: going to take another quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about Top Chef with TC you can listen to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network we'll be right back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm going to try your last name again. Radicchio, right? Mm-hmm. Calicchio? There you go. Okay, excellent. I, I haven't been... I realize I've been saying TC a lot, but that's because you mentioned Thomas Keller and everyone calls him TK, TK. in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Do you have a familiar nickname in the restaurant? No, Tom.
3: I, I, I asked not to be called chef. Just call me Tom. It's
2: fine. What do they call you on top, chef? Uh, usually chef. Yeah. yeah. Are, are they in fear of you as a judge?
3: Um, I think they're you know I I think when you first come on the set because you get thrown right into it. There's no prep. You walk on, and and I think they all come there thinking that like you know know, we'll kind of ease into this, and it's like you're there, so you're just like freaked out from the moment you're there. And uh, I I think they are a little bit, and you know it's it's great to be tested. I love when they sort of sort of give them back, and then you know they they very quickly figure out that. and again, it's about the food. I'm not. I'm not trying to intimidate them at all. But you know, you start getting into a food conversation, they quickly figure out. You know, uh, he has a few, knows a few things. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So the most recent uh, version mm-hmm. ended recently, and mm-hmm. Kristen Kish. Yeah. yeah. Would you hire her? Um, yeah, I, I would. I would. I I try.
3: I have not never hired anyone on the show. The last thing I want to do is get accused of you know having someone win because I wanted to hire them and make their career. But so uh but um yeah, there are you know, theoretically what I've hired, yeah, of course. She's yeah. really, really talented. She works for Barbara Lynch in, in Boston and uh she she's a real talent. She's young, um, she has a good feel for, for food. Um and there's usually one little oddball thing that she does, but it works. Um so yeah, I th- I think she's uh She's really talented, and there's, there's been a lot of talent Paul Key from last, last season, really talented guy. Uh, another guy who just put a dish together, and again, he, you know, he works for Tyson Cole, and Tyson taught him well. I mean, you see the better chefs who are on that show. They've had a good, really good mentor. Um, uh, you know, the uh, Voltaggio brothers are both really talented. Um, but there's so many talents. I mean, Harold's, you know, killing it. Dale Talde's killing it out here in Brooklyn, huh? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, so there, this, you know, we, we get talent to chess on the show. So it must be an exciting show for you to be on, too, because you see so much, so many new ideas and techniques. What do you walk away, you know, with? Well, for
3: me, I, I think the real thrill is I, I get to see a lot of young, up-and-coming talent that I would never um, get to meet. And, and, you know, obviously the show helps their careers if, if you know... If, if they get, you know, through at least a couple of challenges. Um, but that's, that's really it. You know, we, um, you know, it's also great because it's, you know, we shoot for five weeks. So if we're in Seattle, I get to spend five weeks in a, in a different city and, you know, I have a lot of downtime, so I get to eat around a bit. And um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it, I have fun doing it. We have a blast and it's great working with Gail. And now having Emeril, um, who has clearly become the breakout star of, the, of this season and, and even last season, I mean, how are you going to stay
2: relevant? How are you going to stay on that show with someone like him?
3: Well, I don't know. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, he's he's. What's great about him is like the the edifice that we all know of, you know, Emerald, the Bam, and all that stuff. That's gone, you know, at least for here. And he's, you know, you, you spend you spend time listening to him, and you realize this guy's been around the block and knows a bunch, and you know he's kind of quiet, and all of a sudden he'll say something. It's just like, oh God, of course, yeah. Um, but I, I really, really love working with him and have gotten to know him a little bit in the last uh, two seasons. And so, aside from
2: seeing new faces and, you know, new foods, what has Top Chef done for food in general, for food systems, policies, for cuisine? Well, I, I, you know, I think, um, it, it's done a few things. I think it, it, it's
3: clearly bringing, um, Food, you know, in all the shows—not just Top Chef, but to the masses—and I think what, what, I ran into someone the other day, and they said, "You know, what's really cool about it is that you see the process. You see that chefs are just not putting dishes together, you know, you know, that's copying stuff. There actually is a process by which they're thinking about dishes, and you get to see that process from from the very beginning when they're giving a challenge, and then you get to see it on a plate. And It's immediate, and it's it's. Actually, it was uh, Liv Shriver who was I was talking about this, and I was really surprised that he watched the show. And he was going, "It's just so cool to watch that whole process, and and it happens so quick, and they're so fast, and and um, so you know that's
2: uh, that's that's pretty it's pretty neat." Yeah, um, it's almost not opposite, but so apart from what you're doing right now. And I know you've done a lot of interviews recently for a brand new film that just came out of Place at the Table, mm-hmm. and they don't have those facets. They don't have those ingredients in front of them. Um, a lot of the subjects in the film itself. Um, why do you do a show like top chef and then do a film like that? Oh
3: God. Well, listen, top chef is, a, um, you know, I, I, I was asked to do that show. I, you know, I, I said no three times and finally decided to do it. Um, and, um, you no, know, it's, it's, it's not that serious, you know. I don't take that whole thing that seriously. It's 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 great. It's a competition. I take the judging very seriously, you know. I don't. I'm not mugging for the camera. Um, you know, my feeling is that the chefs are coming on the show. They're leaving their families. They're leaving their restaurants. They're not allowed TV, magazines, newspapers. They're pretty much locked down for you know the time that they're there. And they're coming on and they're working their tails off. I mean, 16 hours a day. They're up and they have cameras in their face. I gotta you know, honor that and, and be serious about the judging, but it's not how we're not saving the world. I mean, you know, the film, uh, um, place at the table. Um, uh, I, I, executive produced it. my wife, uh, directed and, and uh, co-directed, I should say with, uh, my wife, Lori Silverbush with her uh, partner on the film, uh, Chrissy Jacobson. And, um, I would say it was 25 years in the making for, for me. And, 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 I say that because for 25 years as, as a professional chef and, and not only me our entire industry has been, you know, great. We're like the first responders of, of charity, you know, anytime something happens, restaurants and chefs are there, you know, trying to raise money or trying to, you know, spearhead an effort to, to do something.
2: Children of Bellevue Food Bank New York. I mean, it well, Mar- Mario's
3: the work that he's been doing with Food Bank in New York has been great. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people, Mark Murphy, Carrie Heffernan, uh, Marcus Samuelson that are working with City Harvest. Um, Alex's lemonade. Alex, Yeah, Mark Vetrich does an amazing job with Alex's. I mean, again, uh, so many people are, are, you know, in the industry are, are doing that. But for 25 years, raising money for for hunger uh, awareness and hunger issues, whether it's with Share Our Strength or the food banks or Meals on Wheels, and um, you know, working with great organizations and raising millions of dollars, and food insecurity in this country just keeps growing. You know, 50 million Americans are struggling to put food on the table. They don't know where their next meal's coming from. And so if we're doing all this work and working with great organizations, but the problem keeps growing, maybe charity, maybe the sort of way we're trying to go about this isn't the way to, to fix it. And so um, also right around the same time, my wife was mentoring a, a young girl and um, we realized that she was often hungry and her family was, was often hungry. And we would send food home and stuff with her and realized we were just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. And so my wife came home one day and said, you know, I want to make a film about this. Um, and she, she's a, a narrative filmmaker and she, uh, and a screenwriter. And she reached out to Christy Jacobson who had uh, done a bunch of docs uh, toots being one of them and, and said, you know, let's explore this together. And um, so they started to, and very early on, they realized that in 1968, there was a film uh, called Hungry in America. It was a CBS news doc um, that came out and they showed near star- starvation conditions in the United States. And very quickly, from that from that uh, news piece, people were, were outraged and just demanded that their politicians fix this. And very quickly, Senators Dolan and Senator McGovern got together and wrote legislation that essentially created the modern food safety net, uh, signed into law by Richard Nixon. And the next ten years, um, from nineteen seventy from like seventy to eighty, we pretty much got rid of hunger in this country. Or pretty much kept it under control. Various programs like. School lunch, uh, WIC program, women, infants, and children, um, food stamps, and now it's called SNAP, uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, and so we pretty much had these great government programs that were really taking care of people. And with the 80s, the ideology changed, and it became a thousand points of lights, and you know, charity is the answer uh, to everybody's problems, and government's not the solution. Let's let's defund everything. And, you know, this idea of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, make it yourself, that became the the dialogue. And with that, hunger came back and came back in a big way. And so looking at that and saying, well, government fixed this before, maybe government could fix it again. And a problem this big, you know, we can't fix through food banks and, and through pantries. You know, back in, 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 uh, in, the, in the late 70s, there was 400, you know, food banks – uh, and now there are, are forty thousand between food banks and pantries and, and soup kitchens, and so we can keep doing this, and it's not—it's not fixing it. You're putting, we're putting band aids. You know, this food banks were an emergency system, so if someone had you know an emergency and, and they needed food, that's where they would go. But it's become a, a a a a sort of a chronically sort of broken system that people are relying on, and so and again, I'm, I'm not—I don't want this to sound as if as if. You know these these various organizations aren't doing amazing work. They are, but they shouldn't they shouldn't have to do the burden of feeding people who who are struggling.
2: Well, I mean, hunger begets well it comes from a poverty. whole bunch of po- re- poverty. poverty. Poverty is why people are hungry. But there's pro- poverty. There's obesity within poverty because of food costs and cheaper calories are you know. Processed foods.
3: Well, well, cal- calories. Calories are cheap. Nutrition is expensive. Yeah, but then again, that goes into government policy. When, when, when we subsidize um, corn. There's 20 billion dollars in farm subsidies that, that, that you know every year. The majority of that, 85 percent of that, goes out to corn, wheat, soy, rice, um, and cotton, and you know, the cotton form of cotton oil, cotton seed oil, and um, uh, f- you know, 15 percent. Um, goes to dairy and livestock and 1% goes to uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. And so healthy food, fruits and vegetables and, and whole grains are expensive. And so it's very easy to demonize someone and say, well, they're, they're feeding their kids soda and oodles and noodles. Well, if that's what you can afford, that's what you get. You know, when your kid's hungry, you're not going to, you know, buy a, a peach that costs more than a fast food burger. And so it's, it's really not a choice.
2: So what are the cheapest healthy food dishes that you could make or you could, you could tell people to start with as a building block? But, but again, you're, you're assuming people know how to cook. Yeah.
3: You, that's a, and you're assuming people have pots and pans. You're assuming they actually have a stove and a refrigerator. I mean, so it, it, there's these assumptions that you make around poverty and around, and around food insecurity that um, y- you can't sort of put yourself in that position unless you've gone through it.
2: So is it like the same assumption that, you know, cooking is a recipe rather than a technique. It's but, almost like installing techniques which are systems. Well, again,
3: you know, people, you know, if, if you go back and you, we used to have, you know, home ec in schools and we stopped that, you know, because it was too expensive. And so people aren't learning how to cook. It's not being passed down anymore. So that's gone. And there are great programs. our uh, strength, No Kid Hungry, they have a program where they're actually teaching people how to cook and I'm sure there are, you know, a lot of community places where you can go and, and, and learn that as well. That's a big step. But it's 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 also you know this this large assumption that, that people are making, um, but uh, you know obesity is a, a big problem. Um, but obesity and hunger—they live in the same neighborhood um, because you can be obese, but you're you're undernourished, because you're malnourished because you're eating fat and sugar, and so you're not healthy.
2: So as a chef, as a restaurateur, I mean, I know you feel it as a responsibility to you know try to solve these things, uh, fix these problems. Should other chefs or other cooks? Other chefs do.
3: Listen, I, I believe that most chefs feel, even though we, we open our restaurants and, and we cook for people who can afford it, I still think most of us believe <clears throat> believe that food is a right and eating is a right that we should have. It's just like air and water. Um, you know, if... if if we had, you know, and we did. If you look at what government did, you know, you think about uh, yellow fever and cholera and, 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 and diseases that were thought to be diseases of the poor in the inner city. Uh, and then when we realized that it was mosquitoes and water and we started bringing in water, you know, from the reservoir system upstate and started spraying to get rid of mosquitoes, that's, you know, government did this. But there was a time where that was just considered a disease and there was a charitable response to that. Just to make people comfortable and let them, you know, go on. And, but But so hunger has become the same thing. And obesity, it's sort of the same same thing. And we, again, we can fix these problems. And so I believe that, you know, as a as a sh- as a chef, again, there are chefs doing amazing things. Bill Telepan, well, us in the school, he's doing great stuff, trying to get healthier food into schools. And Michelle Nishan, was doing a you know, Wholesome Wave, and um, just uh, trying to make uh, produce more fruits and vegetables more affordable to people who are uh, on food stamps, and trying to create a, a better system. And and so there are chefs involved in sort of uh, uh, sustainability issues with food you know, being processed and stuff like that. And so we, we all are, are working within this food system that is it's a big system and trying to sort of make our, our way through it. But I still believe that there's a political solution to a lot of these things and that we have to become activists and we have to sort of make government know what is, what's important. And I think if you look at hunger, we have to make hunger a voting issue. Just like the second, like to certain people, Second Amendment rights are a voting issue. They'll vote on a single issue, just like, a, 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 you know, abortion can be a single issue. Hunger should be a single issue. And quite frankly, if our politicians are not going to help solve
2: this problem, I think they need to be labeled as, as pro hunger. So, what's the best way for people to find information aside from, you know, a place at the table uh, to become active in these communities?
3: Well, um, you know, there, there's there's so many different organizations that you can get involved in. Um, uh, I would suggest if you're interested in hunger, really try to see this film. I'm not plugging the film because I produced it. Um, um, uh, yeah, I am actually. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not a film about I – mean, there's talking heads in the film giving you numbers and stuff, but it's really a story of these three characters and these other characters that are there with them. So you're seeing teachers and pastors and uh, police officer, a police officer that is on food assistance because he's not making ends meet. You know The other, the other myth that we, we try to dispel is that um, people who are receiving food stamps aren't sitting around and they're lazy and don't work. 80% of, of homes – that are, are, are receiving food stamps have at least one person in the family working, and 70% of them are working full-time. And so um, we, we try to put a new face on hunger. You know, I think too often we're conditioned to think of hunger as, you know, someone starving in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, a famine victim or something with the flies and the standard stomach. You know, hunger is all around us. There are 1.2 million people in New York City that are food insecure. So, you know, in America, it's one in six. You're on, a, you're on a subway in New York, and there's, you know, 40 people in those cars. So there, there are hungry people around you, and you don't see it. We're not conditioned to see it. We don't know what it looks like. And so that was part of the film to sort of put a, a different face on this. And also to point out that this is a solvable problem that we have here. We can fix it. And then, you know, of course, people are going to say there's no money in government. We've got to cut back, cut back, cut back. The cost... In, in real dollars, and I'm not making these numbers up. This is the Congressional Budget Office that you know numbers 167 billion dollars a year, either in healthcare costs or lack of productivity because of hunger, and because of obesity. And so, this is a, a problem that we can fix. It won't cost 167 billion dollars to fix it. And so, this is something we can fix and actually reap the benefits benefits down the road. You know, then if you if you our focus on national security. Only 25% of the recruits that, 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 that go into the military now are fit to serve. And so there's a, a lot of issues around this and a lot of problems that we can solve if we can get healthy, nutritious food to people who need it. So
2: we're talking of this as an American issue at, at yeah. this moment, but let's look at other ethnicities, other cultures, other cuisines. Is there one that has a healthy diet and that is because it has a healthy government? Um, yeah,
3: I think the Scandinavian countries get it. You know, they they really, you know, go out of the way and... and
2: we're, we're 20...
3: At the industrialized nations, we're 23 out of 23. Out of 23 industrialized nations, we're 23rd when it comes to food insecurity. I mean, think about that. I mean, Greece is higher than we are. and So everybody has to point at Greece and go, oh, you don't want to be Greece. Well, Greece actually does a better job. And so, um, no, I, I... Listen, there are clearly places that are worse off, but um, Jeff Bridges is in the film and he points out you know what he he's he's been a, a hunger advocate for 30 years now start at the end food and uh, uh, hunger network and as he points out if we can't get it right here who are we to try to tell other people how to deal with their problems
2: I don't think you could have said it better and I don't want to say any more other than I too will endorse your film <laughs> and please go out and see this because it is a real problem here but there are real solutions and as long as we, you know, become active and are hungry to end hunger, I think it's... It I like that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Hungry to end hunger. I like so that. I, I agree to do that if you do. That's a bumper sticker. Fantastic. <laughs> well, this was a bumper sticker show. Thank you so much for Are we out of time on. already? You want to keep on chatting? That you want to come back on? We could do weekly. We could do monthly. <laughs> I know you got to pay your cousin a visit, too, on the station. Yeah,
3: yeah. The, the business of the business. <laughs> I got to pay him a
2: visit. But uh, I think this is the best beginning of this conversation cool. that we could have had. Thanks. Thank you again, Tom. Real Thanks, pleasure. Mike. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan, Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Cool.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,